welcome to Objections to the Rule, your Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, I am Emily, and today the team is happy to present to you a bit of a a stitched together show. It's a format that we were doing a lot at the start of the pandemic, and we're doing it again this week. So each member of the team has recorded their own stories separately, um, so there's less discussion and more information and individual commentary, and we hope you enjoy it. So to start us off, I wanted to address something that we were unable to cover last week. Uh, The Objection to the Rural team recorded our weekly show last Friday, which was September 18th, only a few hours before the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was announced. Uh, So we don't mention it on the show that aired that Sunday. We just wanted to take a moment this week to celebrate her and the work she did. Uh, RBG became the second woman and the first Jewish woman on the United States Supreme Court when she was nominated by President Clinton in 1993. A famously liberal justice, the importance of uh, Ginsburg's work could fill a book and has filled books and will continue to fill books, but I'll just give you some highlights here uh, that I, some of my favorite highlights, uh, courtesy of some articles I found on USA Today and Elle and some PBS transcript work thrown in there too. Um, so from USA Today, quote, before Ginsburg, state-funded schools didn't have to admit women. And quote, women couldn't sign a mortgage or have a bank account without a male co-signer. Uh, from an L article, uh, as well as some USA Today information, she helped draft the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978. Before this, employers could just fire a woman for simply getting pregnant. And, quote, she was a key vote in granting same-sex marriages um, in the famous 2015 court decision. And even her choice of accessories carried importance. A recent New York Times article by Vanessa Friedman explored her famous collection of fancy collars. Quote, the idea was to claim what was a traditionally male uniform and unapologetically feminize it. And here's one of my favorite RBG quotes uh, about women on the Supreme Court. People ask me sometimes, when do you think it will be enough? When will there be enough women on the court? And my answer is when there are nine. And now Ruth Bader Ginsburg has become not only the first woman, but the first Jewish person, period, to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol. Breaking barriers even in death. Rest in peace, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And now I'm going to throw it to Matt for our local story this week. Take it away, Matt. Hello, Emily. Thank you for editing. Hello, Teresa and Jasmine. I hope you're doing good. <laughs> All right. I'm Matthew Schneeman. I'm going to be doing a local story. Sorry, I sound kind of nasally today because uh, my nose is a little stuffed up. Specifically, I'm nasless, nasalless, because my nose is stuffed up, so it's not that I sound nasally, but that's neither here nor there. Let's get to it. From the New York Times. Quote, for the first time in its 150-year history, the Metropolitan Museum of Art has hired a full-time Native American curator, Patricia Marroquin Norby. Dr. Norby, who is of Parapacha heritage, an indigenous population that primarily lives in Michoacan, Mexico, will assume the role of associate curator of Native American art on Monday, end quote. Kind of like Jordan Peele becoming the first black person to get an Oscar for screenwriting. It's like, cool, this is great. Wait, what is that? 
that means there wasn't, huh? Continuing on, quote, for most of the museum's history, work by Native American artists has been displayed in the galleries of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas, end quote. Now, what does that mean? It means what you think it means in the same space. But specifically, it also means that, and this is from a hypoallergic article, quote, the institution had relied on one curator who oversaw the Department of Africa, Oceania, and the Americas, end quote. So it's not just sharing spaces, but it's also not having someone picked out specifically. And I'm sure that that curator knew a lot about Native art. And the Oceania room in the Met, you know, Oceania, Oceania is like Polynesia, Micronesia, the Pacific Islands. That room is really amazing. But you're the Met. So like having a full-time curator for the art of the land in which we stand is pretty basic. But these are standards that didn't exist, and they certainly didn't exist when these museums developed. Quote, in the, the United States, where most of the large encyclopedic art museums were formed in the second half of the 19th and early 20th century, legacies of putting native cultures on display are deep-rooted and not so easily given up, end quote. So they're talking about like when these museums were built... They, were, they would just kind of throw stuff up regardless of context. Just putting cultural, religious, or ritualistic objects on display is kind of messed up. The Western model of the art museum is the encyclopedic art museums. Not to lump all Native art in the same category, but a lot of Native art and, and culture is not museum-friendly or specific. It's, meant, it's not meant to be divorced from the actual world. But it's not like the museum doesn't care about Native art. They house many pieces. And in 2019, the Met had a big show focusing on the Plains Indians. New York Times, quote, The museum staged a Native American art exhibition in its American wing in 2018. But the show faced pushback from the Association on American Indian Affairs, an advocacy group that claimed the museum had not satisfactory, satisfactorily consulted with tribal representatives before the show opened, end quote. Yes, museums of this kind, the Eurocentric uh, encyclopedic museum, where it's basically like a warehouse or just objects, they have a fraught history with marginalized people. The philosophy of what art is and how to display it can promote things like Western depictions of the vanishing race, which has relegated Native people to the past, or simply by only focusing on the past Native work, uh, on, on the past by only showing like old you know, Native work can do the same thing. Women as well have generally been massively pushed to the sides. But these institutions do do much good, and so it's a tightrope to walk. My friend is a Native artist and teacher. She's Dakota, and she works for the Minneapolis Institute of Art. She describes the compromise one makes while getting a chance at sharing her culture 
but still within an institution that's far from perfect and that has made many mistakes about how they have treated Native art and Native people in the past. Um, she wasn't available to do an interview. I want I called her to see if she could, but she was too busy this week. The institutions itself I'd like to focus on for a moment. Many of these institutions, if you look at them, they have these big columns out front, right? kind of like the, the, the Roman columns themselves outside of these institutions is a relic of white supremacy, the false imagining of a white legacy that leads to Rome, the same pillars used on plantations, the Greek revival you often see in the South. You know, the words veto and senator, those are Latin words that come from the same worship of this past, like, Roman Empire, this past of power. Never mind that the Roman Empire wasn't white. <laughs> um... It was a mix of everything. They they were like the Borg. They assimilated and did a whole bunch of weird stuff. And But the white supremacist legacy of worshipping this uh, powerhouse is, and those institutions literally reflect that in their architecture. But many think that there still is value in working within these institutions. Rachel Bonner wrote a paper, quote, Native American art distinctly illustrates the complexity of these art world ethics, raising questions as to the structural adequacy of the contemporary encyclopedic museum as an institution for the display of these objects and challenging the Western authority to define art through unconsciously ethnocentric display, end quote. It's a bit of a word mouth. You can tell this is an academic paper. But are they, quote, challenging the Western authority to define art through even unconsciously ethnocentric display? I've learned a lot from seeing these works in museums. They are dope. But I'm also in support of anyone who thinks it's pointless to work within the confines of an art institution like the Met. Of course, compromising within the art world is small potatoes for Native people considering the history of compromises that they've had to make since colonization, the compromise of land, hunting ground. Native people have had to work with the system to end cruel adoption policies that steal children out of Native communities. And just this week, two bills passed the House to address the epidemic of missing and murdered Native women. Quote, Violence is a serious cause for concern among all Indigenous women living on reservations who face murder rates that are more than 10 times higher than national average. End quote. And that, those bills are being done through the biggest institution of them all, the U.S. government which has an even worse track record for respecting Native rights and sovereignty. So, I didn't write a conclusion. And I don't have any of my co-hosts just ask a question to, to, uh, <laughs> to wrap this up. Wrap this up. So, I guess so I guess the point is, I'm glad that the, the Met is slowly getting more accurate in the way that it depicts and works with Native communities because 
it's you know well, no, it, it, it's wonderful it's great stuff though it may be limited and on what you can do within the met which is good because you can't put the whole thing in the met the met has a very narrow focus narrow has a very narrow focus uh, point or, or, or function in society. The museums are where we kind of look at stuff to kind of learn a little bit and appreciate little bits of things. All of native culture is outside of the museums anyway, so it's impossible to, um, to, uh, to put it all on the museum to think that they can depict it, depict it all or whatever, whatever. So that's that. A white guy telling you how to respect native culture. <laughs> Take that with a grain of salt. Um, but it does seem, though the progress is embarrassing, that this is the first full-time curator. Right, in the 150-year history. It is progress, nonetheless, nonetheless. And every step forward is this. And every step forward is helpful. Okay, back to you. Let's take our first musical break. We have a great mix of music for you today. Our first track of the day is a throwback jam that we all know and love. This is September by Earth, Wind and Fire. We'll be right back.
Hi, this is Jasmine. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm bringing you this week's national news story. This is a pre-recorded segment, so I'm recording this Friday evening, September the 25th, but you'll be hearing this September the 27th on Sunday afternoon, so there might be some new details that have emerged. So this information was written up on the BBC's website. The name of the article is Brianna Taylor, Police Officer Charged But Not Over Death. Kentucky's Attorney General Daniel Cameron presented the grand jury decision to charge one of the officers who shot Brianna Taylor with three counts of wanton endangerment for firing into a neighbor's apartment in Louisville. Wanton endangerment is for an act that shows an extreme indifference to the value of human life. And incidentally, this is not in the article, but this is separate. The grand jury decision came down exactly 65 years to the day after an all-white, all-male jury acquitted J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant for the murder of Emmett Till after they deliberated for a little more than an hour. So back to Brianna's case, the two other officers who were involved have not been charged with anything. Miss Taylor's rep- relatives and activists who have been rallying around like calls for justice for her have been calling for all three of the officers that um, barged into her home and shot at her, who are all also white, to be charged with murder or at least manslaughter. But that was rejected by the grand jury that reviewed the evidence. According to Mr. Cameron, who is a black Republican that is apparently rising up in the ranks in the Republican Party, he said that a ballistics report found that six bullets struck Miss Taylor, but only one killed her. The attorney general said that it was not clear if Mr. Hankinson shot had hit Miss Taylor, but they had hit a neighboring up apartment. So Hankerson is the one that's being charged not for hitting Brianna, but for shooting into a neighboring space where someone else may have been hurt. The top prosecutor said that the other two officers, Jonathan Mattingly and Mr. Cosgrove, had been, quote, justified to protect themselves and the justification bars us from pursuing criminal charges. Mr. Cameron also added, if we simply act on emotion or outrage, there is no justice. Mob justice is not justice. Justice sought by violence is not justice. It just becomes revenge. He also added that the FBI was still investigating potential violations of federal law in the case. And officials this month earlier in September, agreed to pay Brianna's family $12 million in a settlement. Um, The current president of the U.S. was asked for his opinion on the decision, and he said at a White House news conference that he thought it was really brilliant. He praised Kentucky's attorney general, who addressed the Republican Party convention last month for doing a, quote, fantastic job. Prior to the decision being announced, there was a state of emergency declared in Louisville on Tuesday, and protests were expected. The National Guard was also deployed to the area. 
the mayor of Louisville set a curfew in the city that's going to remain that remained in place for three days. And he said that he had declared the state of emergency earlier due to the potential for, quote, civil unrest. Police officers closed off traffic on certain streets where protests had been prevalent and barricades were erected around the city center. There have already been um, demonstrations over Brianna's murder in the city for over 100 days straight. The deployment of the National Guard has been criticized because one of the guardsmen shot and killed a Black restaurant owner named David Mickety as authorities were dispersing Black Lives Matter protesters in June. The Louisville Police Department has said that its officers have come under fire while they were trying to clear the area. But after officers on the scene were found to have not activated their body cameras, the city's police chief was fired. The other two officers who were not charged but were involved in Brianna's killing, Mr. Mattingly and Mr. Cosgrove, have been reassigned to administrative duties. The Louisville Courier-Journal has reported that six officers are currently under internal police review for their role in the shooting that killed Breonna Taylor. One of these officers, Mattingly, wrote in an email, and this is me speaking, this isn't from the article, but he wrote in an email to over a thousand co-workers of his in which he criticized city leaders and protesters that Regardless of the outcome, today or Wednesday, I know we did the legal, moral, and ethical thing that night, he wrote in the message, which was published in media outlets on Tuesday. And this man who, if you've listened to us regularly over the past few weeks, or we've spoken about this case, and if you haven't read up on the details of how Brianna was murdered, I strongly encourage you to do so because it will make it even more shocking to you that this man could say these things. But he says, it's sad how the good guys are demonized and the criminals are canonized. Your civil rights mean nothing, he added, but the criminal has total autonomy. It's really difficult to put into words what it feels like to see these stories play out the same over and over and over again. Like I can't even, on the one hand, you almost become numb because you already know what to expect. You already know that the quote unquote justice system that we have in this country is a farce. It's not about actually bringing justice to people. It's about maintaining the status quo, which means maintaining a racial hierarchy and a capitalist hierarchy. But no matter how many times it happens and you already know what the outcome will be, it's still enraging. It's still painful. It still feels like a punch in the gut when it happens. And honestly, you know, being a black woman myself, I go through my life knowing every day that if something were to happen to me, no one would help, you know, and even if someone did try to assist, like Brianna wasn't at home alone, like she had a partner that tried to protect her and then he ended up getting locked up. 
you know, and after all of this, all this fighting, all this protesting, all this awareness, this is still the result that we get after a hundred days of speaking up and speaking out. And not to take anything away from Brianna and the attention that her case has rightfully been getting, but this is just one example. There's been many, many other names that we've talked about on this show that you can Google if you're so inclined to look up police murders in the U.S. over the years. There's many more individuals that are being brutalized by the cops and will never know their names. And I just... I'm really hoping against hope because it doesn't look very promising right now that with social media, with what we're trying to do with this show, with there just not being an excuse anymore that you don't know about it, that people really understand what the forces that are allegedly there to serve and protect us, like what it is that they are actually doing. If you're still naive and you still want to believe in reform and it's just a few bad apples and it's not, they're not that bad, they're not like some movie villain or whatever, you really need to open your eyes and stop hiding in the sand. So on that note, um, I would like to introduce not just a song, but it's, it's, it's like a poem at first. Um, it's by Gil Scott Heron. I know we played one of his songs last week as well, but this is his song, No Knock. Um, we want to do a poem for one of our unfavorite people, um, who's now the head of the uh, Nixon campaign. He was formerly the attorney general named John Mitchell. Um, Nixon's campaign seems to be out, you know, getting off on a rather hip foot after his trip to China in the name of peace. Uh, while they were killing people right across the street, so to speak, in uh, North and South Vietnam. But um, No Knock, the law in particular, was allegedly um, <laughs> legislated for black people rather than, you know, for their destruction. And it means simply that authorities and members of uh, the police force no longer have to knock on your door before entering. They can now knock your door down. It's No Knock. to me, I must admit, but just for the record, you were talking shit. Long rap about no not being legislated for the people you've always hated in this hellhole that you, we, call home. No knock, the man will say, to keep that man from beating his wife. No knock, the man will say, to protect people from themselves. No knocking head, rocking, into shocking, shooting, cussing, killing, crying, lying, and being white. No knock. No knock on my brother Fred Hampton, bullet holes all over the place. No knock on my brother Michael Harrison, jammed a shotgun against his skull. For my protection, who's gonna protect me from you? The likes of you, the nerve of you, to talk that shit face to face, your tomato face, deadpan, your deadpan, deadening another freedom plan. No knocking, head rocking, into shocking, shooting, cussing, killing, crying, lying, and being white. But if you're wise, no knocker, you'll tell your no-knocking lackeys, ha, no knock on my brother's head, no knock on my sister's head, no knock on my brother's head, no knock on my sister's head, and double lock your door, because
Well, soon someone may be no-knocking. Ha, ha, for you. No-knock. To be slipped into John Mitchell's suggestion box. Happy Sunday, everyone. This is Teresa Robinson, and for our world news story this week, we will be hopping across the southern border to Mexico. Information for this story was drawn from the websites of the LA Times, The Guardian, and The Washington Post. Mexican farmers in the drought-stricken state of Chihuahua are pitted against riot squads from the National Guard in an increasingly violent standoff over the government's decision to ship scarce water supplies to the United States. A 1944 binational treaty mandates U.S. water distribution to Mexico via the Colorado River and Mexican allocation of water to the U.S. via the Rio Grande. The treaty was negotiated when Mexico and the U.S. were Second World War allies. Mexican officials concede that the treaty is advantageous because Mexico receives four times the volume of water than it delivers to the United States. The treaty requires that Mexico provide water to the United States based on five-year cycles. Currently, however, Mexico is facing a huge shortfall of approximately 379.8 million cubic meters, which is due by October 24, when the current five-year cycle ends. The deficit is about 88% of what Mexico is expected to su supply per year to the United States. Mexico has fallen behind in its water payment for the current cycle and not for the first time. Many farmers argue that Mexico can postpone payment in drought conditions, something Mexican and U.S. officials say is off the table because Mexico was in the deficit at the end of the last cycle in 2015. The treaty, however, does not specify sanctions for noncompliance and assumes that both parties will make good faith efforts to fulfill mutual obligations. Violent protests are taking place in Chihuahua, a mostly desert state that is home to large-scale farming of vegetables, grains, and other crops along with ranching. The confrontation has already led to bloodshed. Earlier this month, a woman was shot dead and her husband was wounded after guardsmen opened fire on farmers wielding sticks and stones. Protesters have blocked railway tracks and torched highway toll booths and federal government vehicles prompting the dispatch of hundreds of National Guard troops. But the unrest escalated to a new level this week when several thousand of protesters descended on the La Boquilla Dam. The marchers clashed with the National Guard troops who fired tear gas and wielded batons and plexiglass riot shields. The outnumbered troops finally pulled back and the protesters continued to occupy the dam. Local farmers insist any shortfall on a quota can be repaid in the future and argue that water held behind Mexican dams, for which they have concessions, has never been a part of the original agreement. Protesters say they do not seek to renegotiate the binational water treaty. Rather, they say Mexican government should seek alternative solutions, such as waiting for fall rains or diverting water from border areas less drought-afflicted than Chihuahua. The president has alleged that unnamed interest and water bosses in Chihuahua have long manipulated supplies to benefit wealthy growers who have made fortunes from planting large tracts of crops such as alfalfa and walnuts that need extensive irrigation. Mexico's National Water Commission says there's enough water to meet the treaty obligations as well as the needs of the Chihuahua growers. In a statement Friday, the commission said all but 11% of the water owed to the growers in irrigated districts has already been distributed from La Boquilla Dam. Other agricultural areas still rely on rainfall. 
Mexican officials responded that time is running out and that the water flows from Chihuahua are essential to settle the country's international debt. My take on this story um, is pretty much concerning the current state of the world. I haven't heard of any shortages of water in the U.S. or on the West Coast. I understand that we are um, obviously in a huge situation with the fires in California. However, I haven't heard of there being a lack of water available to people in those communities. So at this point, I think that the deadline could be extended or this year the debt could be settled and that we can move into 2021 without these old debts that cause nations to suffer. And now we have Matt back for a special segment with an update on the Muse Brooklyn. Go ahead, Matt. I'm Matthew Schneeman for Objection to the Rule. About a month ago, I got a tour of the Muse Brooklyn, a practice and event space for circus performing and circus performers. Angela Buccini-Butch gave me a tour of the space. Of course, they've been hit hard by the pandemic. Hello. Hello. Hey, how are you? Hey, big dog. That's Hava. And this is Puma. Do you want to go in the yard? Or? Okay. I shouldn't have got her all excited. <laughs> hey, this you is did Chris. That for us. Chris Hi, Chris. I'm Matthew. Yeah. Hi, Chris. Like the associate artistic director. It's Chris. That's cool. We so... don't really have titles because we all just do all the things. So. <laughs> yeah. We have too many jobs to bother with titles. Exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. And normally we have these carpeted mats that are covering the whole surface, so there's just like padding everywhere, but with COVID we take it up and as we let our staff in, we just create little sections that they can train in. Mm -hmm. So this normally is not how this is all set up. Behind the warehouse in the backyard is a beautiful steampunk, crust punk garden. I mean, part of what I love about this space so much is that we do have this like little escape back here and it feels like you're out of the city. But it's then beautiful. we're so close to the train. Yeah, so last night we used to have our tour bus back here and that was my office. And now that is gone already as well. There's our horse, Woody. That's not a real horse. It's a horse made of wood, but it's visually striking. Oh, it's, a, oh, it's so funny. It's, this is such a funny thing to do for audio. Yeah. It's such a visual, uh, the yes. inside and the outside. But. Yeah, that's Woody, our horse. Um, really yeah. looks good. So even if we wanted to reopen, I would say a good third of our clients have left the city. Possibly a third of our teachers are all gone. Yeah, the people that like rent space to Yep. Practice. Yep. And since events and shows, which are our main bread and butter for us to be able to run the school affordably, um, are not permitted and probably won't be for another year to two years. <laughs> um, or, or did you? We're, I mean, we defaulted here on the space pretty much immediately. Mm -hmm. And I knew that when we were closing, I was like, if we're closed for more than two weeks, we're in trouble. And that's just like the reality of it. Um, so the fact that we're able to still do some programming now while we wait to see if we can negotiate with the landlords, we're still waiting for their next communication. Um, we're maintaining <laughs> so, the so ethics of what we want to do. And we still have some scholarship students and we still have, as long as we can pay the coaches a fair rate. So the objective is not, let's see if we can 
stay afloat. It's let's see if we can keep the community going. Yeah, right now. To see what's on the other side. Financially, it's a lost cause. And I mean that in the most positive of ways, <laughs> but there's, you can't recover. The art studios and any business that was in the arts was pretty much struggling before you got to this point. And so with the pandemic, you would need a miracle to kind of push through. Um, we've been really blessed. We don't know who it is, but we've had an angel that's donated each month. And that donation has allowed my admin team to work. So I've been really blessed in the sense that that piece of my team could stay together and we could still maintain at least part-time hours. That's great. I didn't know the the term angel until a couple years ago when I was at a community radio station. And, and so an angel is just like a private donor that just comes in and drops some money. Someone has dropped money each month and they've made a consistent donation and it's anonymous and we have no, <laughs> we've reached out to everyone. We're trying to just find out to thank this person, but also to talk to them about the future because we understand that it's gonna to have to shift. Um, and we're not sure who it is, but whoever this person is, like, thank you because you've allowed three people to keep their jobs. Um, and that's huge. <laughs> and that allowing those three admins to be working has then taken care of our coaches because now we can run our online classes. So then they can have some income. And it's also allowed us to do the live broadcast shows, which means we can hire nine artists each time and pay them a stipend. So it's, um, yeah, it's more about maintaining the community and just um, our presence with the work we do. Are you okay talking about what you just referenced, that last week uh, one of the sure. performers got hit? Just because that really places us in time. time this summer place. has been uh, over a thousand um, people have been shot, um, which is way more than normal. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's definitely a huge spike in uh in violence around the city and last week uh, one of our students who was a regular student who was here almost every single night and progressing on a beautiful aerial journey um, was walking with his wife to go get toothpaste and he got hit by a bullet in a drive-by shooting and uh, it went through his kidney and hit his spine and not clear if he will walk again. That was a threat that didn't really exist while these financial threats are very real and the physical threats of they're the real virus. someone said to me the other day too they're like well money is not real once you're talking about numbers this big or that big <laughs> it's not real no because as we're looking at properties and everything i'm like to some degree you see the numbers and i'm like well how the heck could that ever happen and then i have other people being like there's people out there that have that money and might believe in what you do so why don't you put it out there hmm. and i'm like sure <laughs> like we don't have that money but yeah you're right somebody does and it's also not real <laughs> It's, it's surreal. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, <laughs> so there's an article in New York Times back in 2013 where they say, in France there are more than 450 troops in 600 schools. They're talking about circus um, troops in schools. Some tr 20 countries, including Belgium, Australia, and Mexico, have established professional circus training grounds at the National Circus School of Montreal, where I now teach more than 150 full-time students come from 20 countries to train in facilities that rival Juilliard's. The school's job placement rate is 95%. Yeah, yeah. 
We don't have that kind of government support or appreciation or value for it structurally. Um, the people value it, um, but we don't have that support from the government to have programs and coaching at that level here in the States. So why, why go for it? Why wade through the bureaucracy and mark and... Well, it was worth it. <laughs> it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to say right now when everything's kind of in shambles, but it was worth it. It's, um, you can't imagine not doing it. Like, you know, you always say, well, what else would I do? Like, I love this. I wouldn't, I couldn't imagine doing something else. Maybe it needs to shift form. When I started getting into circus and it was just such a transformative kind of experience um, and just the community around it, like I can't imagine not doing it. We're trying to give as much as we can in our final moments because we, it is clear, like we've known that. And to be honest, we've been losing this for five years. This isn't shocking, but it's, um, I try to wake up each day and I'm like, well, what, what do we have left to give? Thank you to Angela Buccini-Butch of the Muse Brooklyn and A.B. Cirque. I hope a year from now you have a wonderful community and home to keep these wild, exciting art forms alive.
And now we're going to take another musical break with a song I love. Uh, this is Angelique Kijo performing a cover of the song Once in a Lifetime by the Talking Heads. We'll be right back. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by. And you may ask yourself, where is my large automobile? And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful world. Letting the days go by. Letting the days go by. Into the blue again. Once in a
Hello, Emily here, back to present this week's good news. Uh, So this story comes from a September 20th article by Andy Corbley on goodnewsnetwork.org titled, Fires Have Helped These Endangered Woodpeckers Make a Comeback, and It's a Reminder of Nature's Resiliency, which is pretty rad, um, in my opinion. So the article explains, quote, It's hard to imagine that the infernos burning in the Sierra Nevada and Cascade Mountain ranges in California and Oregon would be good for anything. But for the native black-backed woodpecker, it's the best of times and necessary for them to continue their transformative practices on the forest. So this woodpecker drills drills holes specifically in what the article calls, quote, fire-hardened trees in search of bugs to eat. The holes it leaves behind then act as new homes for dozens of different species uh, that, quote, eat fire retardant plant seeds and distribute them hither and yon in their droppings, thus allowing the forest to regenerate. Uh, I just love the use of hither and yon there. Um, Good job, Andy Corbley. So nature is pretty cool, right? And the article continues to explain, quote, this amazing avian is just one of an entire web of plant and animal species who have evolved around the necessity of seasonal fires. The woodpecker deliberately seeks fire damaged forests out in search of their favorite food, the larvae of the black fire beetle, which have evolved heat sensing organs to find out which trees are still warm from fires to lay their eggs in. Indeed, both of these species have evolved to interact with the pine forests of the northwestern United States, where the trees have thick coatings of resin-soaked bark that protect them from high-intensity blazes. And that's all from the Good Good News Network. Uh, So yes, the current devastating blazes on the West Coast have been terrifying to watch on the news, the loss of human life, the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people, the horrible air quality resulting from the smoke. It's all very, very bad. Um, But it's important to remember that while the scale of these blazes are scary and the scale itself is a man-made problem, uh, forest fires are are actually built into our ecosystems and in and of themselves do not spell permanent disaster. So just keep that in mind that we we have to work to keep the the these types of forest fires from reaching the scale that they've been getting to in recent years. But um, they're also part of the natural world in and of themselves. And that's my story this week. Have a great rest of your week. That's it for this week's Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app, on Spotify, or anywhere you can find iTunes podcasts. Listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out with our final track of the day. I like to dedicate this track to the memory of Breonna Taylor and all of those who are protesting against the hypocrisy and racism of the American justice system. This is Jamila Woods with Black Girl Soldier. See you next week. Bye.
doctor and she thought I sat a fire.